The Tablet Show, episode 66, with guest Luke Robolewski. Recorded live Thursday, December 20th, 2012. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Luke Robolewski about mobile UI design. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to The Tablet Show. It's Carl and Richard, back from our travels around the United States and a couple places in Canada. Hey, Mr. Campbell. Fun to do a show in the studio again, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's very cool. Back home. Yeah. With a, with a good microphone. You and know. reminding my children what I look like and finding out my backup generator borked. Yeah, you know, uh, you had some snow and uh, apparently shoveled the driveway three or four times. Yep. Shoveled the driveway a bunch and then a tree a limb came down on the power line up the street, knocked the power out, and the generator did not fire over. And that's when the wife says... Oh, yeah, I haven't heard the self-test lately. Oh. And, of course, I haven't been home. We've been on the road, so surprise. Yeah, you know, I feel like we uh, picked up a whole bunch of new tablet show listeners on the road trip. There was mm-hmm. a bunch of .NET Rocks fans that had never heard of it, and, of course, it's all about modern apps. So, uh, well, let's just get started right here with Better Know, a framework. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, that's actually a blog post. Nice. So this blog post is called Building Heterogeneous TypeScript Libraries. It's a technique for compiling one or more TypeScript source files to a single JavaScript library file that can be used in both the browser and by Node.js apps. If you go to tinyurl.com slash tsexports, uh, it turns out it's all in the export. There's basically just very simple examples that show how to do this. Cool. Yeah, and it's fairly easy, but very, very useful. That's neat. It's nice to see that TypeScript's being picked up. Folks are starting to work with it and organizing stuff as they need it. Yep. And this guy, Stuart, uh, who has this blog who does not have his last name published there, at least I can't find it, um, has lots of really good, concise blog posts. Um, So if you're interested, go check them out. Nice. So, Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 53, and that's the one we did... Uh, at DevReach, talking about mobile development, we had uh, John Flanders and Brian Rinaldi from uh, Adobe, as well as our friend Chris Sells. Yep. Uh, and I just remember it was a pretty raucous conversation. Yeah, I remember. And here's a comment from Red, speaking of not having last names, who says, while I don't necessarily disagree that the HTML5, JavaScript, CSS is the direction we are eventually all going on mobile, as it stands today, it's just not a competitor when you're talking immersive, high-performing, pleasant-to-use interfaces. I can easily tell when a mobile app is made with the HTML5 stack any day of the week and even on late Saturday nights. Ah, There's also the issue of having a user experience on each platform that looks and feels native to the specific platform. Kendo UI does a commendable job at the right once run anywhere, look native anywhere idea, but history has repeated time and time again that the lowest common denominator of functionality on each platform usually leaves us with something to be desired. Something. Ultimately, this goal requires a customization of the UI layer for each platform. 
You just can't make one single design take full advantage of each native platform. Hmm. I agree that skill reuse is a huge advantage for the HTML5 stack in mobile development. However, I'd argue that you get the same benefits from C-sharp with MonoTouch, Mono for Android, and Windows. Plus, yeah. you get truly native UI and are not bound to any lowest common denominator on each platform. You just got to do three times the work. Three, well, on the only the UI piece. Right. Things like MVVM Cross allow us to reuse a lot of code across the platforms if you write it using well-known patterns. Mm. And he provides a link to a project he's done on GitHub around using MVVM Cross. Well, that's good. This is the first thing I've really taken a look at. Um, there you go. Very interested in MVVM Cross. Yeah. Of course, uh, we learned about it on the road trip and yep. uh, have been very intrigued ever since. Yeah, a, it's definitely a show in our future. The, the idea is that uh, everything from the view model back is one code base. Mm -hmm. And then you just do your UI with uh, the MVVM pattern. And Red finishes off with, I've seen the HTML5 mobile apps uh, having to be rebuilt natively much too often to believe that it is an acceptable answer for the present. It may work at a pinch for some line of business apps, but even when you're sacrificing customer happiness and risking user adoption of your apps, for what? Maybe in the future, the HTML5 development approach will be the be-all and end-all, and it's a good thing I keep honing those skills. But for now, I'll mm. stick to the best of both worlds. C-sharp, thank you very much. We like C-sharp. I like C-sharp, too, and I appreciate your position, Red. I think part of that conversation also got into this idea that early to market is important, too, and finding out that you have a market. You know, I think you've got a good problem if you've got people in a place where they're complaining that your app is not as good as it could be, mm. right? In the startup world, they talk about if you're not embarrassed by your first version, you ship too late. Mm. So mm -hmm. there, there is sort of a positioning here, but I'm with you. We've seen this over the years. Right. Native wins time and again, and I'm not going to argue that one at all. Yep. And so, Red, with that, a tablet show mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a tablet show mug, just write a comment on the website at thetabletshow.com. And with that, let me introduce our esteemed guest, Luke Robluski. Luke is currently the CEO and co-founder of Input Factory, Inc., an internet startup focused on creating big value from micro-mobile interactions. Prior to this, Luke was the co-founder and chief product officer of BagCheck, which was acquired by Twitter just nine months after being launched publicly. Before he was founding startup companies, Luke was an entrepreneur in residence at Benchmark Capital, the chief design architect, VP at Yahoo, lead user interface designer at eBay, and a senior interface designer at NCSA. That's the birthplace of the first popular graphical web browser, NCSA Mosaic. Luke is the author of three popular web design books, Mobile First, Web Form Design, and Sightseeing, A Visual Approach to Usability, in addition to many articles about digital product design and strategy. He's also a consistently top-rated speaker at conferences and companies around the world and a co-founder and former board member of the Interaction Design Association. Luke also founded Luke W. Ideation and Design, a product strategy and design consultancy, and taught graduate interface design courses at the University of Illinois. Welcome, Luke. Thank you. Hopefully everybody stuck around through that intro. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it, it's important to lay out your credentials here. You've, you've shipped a lot of software. Yeah, well, I have been parts of teams that have shipped a lot of software, yes. Well, and therefore you have shipped a lot of software. And, uh, you know, and we love to talk to people who have, uh, you know, a lot of history uh, in, in yours, your expertise is in design, but uh, ultimately that's what you're doing. 
So uh, congratulations on such a successful string of uh, successes. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully it's uh, just the start because it doesn't feel like this tech thing is getting old anytime soon. Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't seem. Well, what's a, a micro-mobile interaction? Is that a sort of a micro-transaction idea or what does that mean exactly? Uh, it means that the current types of devices that people are using for their computing tasks are very different from what they used to use, right? We had like 20-something years of the graphical web in desktops and laptops. We had like 30 years of the GUI and uh, tons of the ideas about how those things work and what they should be in terms of software and interface, sort of the area that I focus on, are really deeply entrenched in our heads. And what you start seeing lots of people do when they make their way over to mobile or tablets or these very different form factors of computers, and they just carry over all that baggage that sure. they've had for years. And uh, one of the kind of biggest stigmas that I see across the board is uh, the carryover of the types of ways we do input on a desktop and laptop world, you know, forms, basically, and sort of complex menus and really graphical user interface abundance, uh, almost interface debris. Whereas if you actually look at how people are using their mobile devices, like let's say a smartphone, for example, you know, they're pulling it out for a minute here, a minute there, throughout the day. 20% of people are using smartphones while on the couch watching TV. And so the circumstances of use of these devices are very, very different than the circumstances of use that you get when you're sitting at your desk at work staring at your laptop screen. Sure. And uh, as a result, I think you have to create different kinds of interactions and different kinds of interfaces and software for these devices. So the idea of a micro-mobile input, to get around to actually answering your question, is a form of input that's designed for that use case. Right, somebody picks up the phone, you've got basically one thumb and one eyeball of their attention. How do you create an interface that works with that? And not only that works with that, but actually lets them get some value out of those quick in-and-out moments on uh, these small screens that use digits instead of precise mouse cursors and so on. I think the constraints of that small form factor really pushed Apple, who innovated this interface, I'm, you know, there's no uh, reason to deny that. Um, to to create these, you know, simple uh, workflow-based, first do this, first do then do that kind of interfaces. Do you think that that um, type of workflow uh, or, or interface has any life on the, uh, or any future on the desktop? Uh, it depends on what we mean by the desktop, right? The lines, especially with things like Windows 8, are really blurring. And I talk to a lot of companies, they're like, oh, we're making a specialized tablet experience. And the first question I had is, well, how are you defining tablet? Is it a laptop that the screen comes out of? Is it a laptop that the screen swivels on top of? Is it a touch screen? Is it something that you position on the desk? I mean, there's just so much variance in the form factors of these different devices now. Well, let's take it to the extreme. Your desktop, your 23, 25-inch monitor and your, your desktop machine at work. Mm -hmm. Well, so those are coming with touch now, too. There's the Sony Vio 20, which uh, is a 20-inch touchscreen. You can flip it down. It's actually multi-touch, so like two people can interact with it from both sides. Mm. Uh, Bell's got a device like this. Early next year, I believe like February or March, uh, Leap Motion is shipping their kind of like Kinect-type interface. Right. Uh, it was like a little $60 add-on that you could do 3D gestures in space off of any screen. Do you think that the micro-mobile interaction is, is requires touch, or is there any kind of uh, way to simplify interfaces without it? 
No, but t- I mean, when you design for touch, you have a couple new considerations at play, right? A is just the human ergonomics of our hands are very different than the sort of uh, pixel-perfect precision of a mouse cursor. We tend to, at least here in the U.S., we tend to eat lots of French fries, so we got big, fat French fry-eating fingers. You know, <laughs> other parts of the world stuff themselves with other sorts of foodies. But uh, generally, our human digits are much, much less precise than our mice, and so we need to create kind of human-sized controls. And it's not just the size of those touch targets. It's also the placement of them. It's how close they are together. It's a where we position them on the screen. So just if you only took that one factor into account, you don't have to reformat your software based on um, how people are using it with their hands. And isn't the essence of the whole thing, Luke, that we're just shaking off 20 years of mouse interactions? Uh, I think we're shaking off 20 years of what is a personal computer. Yeah. And uh, mouse interactions have been a big core part of that, right? We just had such a stable UI for so long, I think people are really struggling to think about different UIs. No, yeah, I mean, this happens every time, right? I mean, think about the struggle we had moving from command line interfaces. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, people hate giving up the terminal. I thought taking your hand off the keyboard was crazy talk. <laughs> One thing that I see happening in Windows 8, especially, is you know the full screen experience of of single task oriented workflow for what lack of a better word. And I don't mean that in a technical sense, but I just mean, you know, you, you, you have one screen that does one thing and then you either navigate back or forward or, or pull up the app bar and go somewhere else for another, you know, small task, but there's a lot of screens involved and there's, I'm, I'm wondering if this is where we're going in with windows eight in on the, in the enterprise. Yeah, well, done wrong, that could become really annoying. So sure to could. do everything requires like five screens, right? But if you look at, for example, in Windows 8, like their weather app, the way you go and interact with like weather information on, say, a weather.com on the web, if you go there, you have this tiny little area of content. There's like 50 million things surrounding it. There's right. like 10 menus. Right. You've got to find the link in the menu you want. You click on that menu. Then you get the sub menu. Then you click on that sub menu. You finally, you're like at the radar information. Right. You know, the Windows 8 weather app, you just sort of slide your finger to the left, and gradually you get more and more detailed information about the weather. And there's really four different screens in that app. You know, you just go from one to the other by sliding your finger across. Yeah, it's just like one fluid motion, and you get all the info you want. You're not sitting there interacting with, you know, like I was saying, three layers of gooey menus. Right. To drill down to the thing you want. And and that's a good uh, cautionary tale, that even a, a web app can be completely horrendous in terms of user interface, and weather.com is a really good example of that. Yeah, I would say it goes beyond can be uh, the default state. I I would assume is that it is, right? Yeah. Um, go to any web page and tell me if you wouldn't want 80% of it or 90% of it just to go away so you can focus on what you're actually there for. Right. The other thing that mobile does, because by its nature it has to be portable, that is, it's something you want to bring with you and use anywhere and everywhere, it does force this sort of focus and uh, simplification because you actually do, if you go from a typical like 1024 by 768 uh, pixel resolution down to like a 32480 iPhone size kind of thing, you're losing 80% of your pixels. So you kind of have to make that hard decision of what's important enough to stay here and what can actually be kind of either taken away or built into a different flow or moved somewhere else or whatever your ultimate decision is, right? But it's very much a real-world forcing function to get us to build simpler software. 
because frankly, you just don't physically have the room to add a lot of complexity. Hmm. Right. Well, it also is disruptive to a lot of revenue models too. Like you, the the whole ad based revenue model just doesn't seem to be working in mobile because it's it, you can't afford the screen space. Yeah, well, show me how that's working on the internet now. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Are you going to indict the whole thing, Luke? Is that what you're going to do? I, no, I mean, I think most people aren't. Actually, I don't think. I know most people aren't making money off of uh, graphical advertising. And if they're doing anything, they're making just enough to sort of scrape by on the server side, uh, the server cost to keep the site running. The only thing that it's ever done for me was aggravate me when I want to get to the content. No, I don't want to, you know, I need to close this thing that popped over the story I'm reading. I'm not even looking at it. And frankly, it just annoyed me to the fact where I may not come back to your site. No, and it's, and it's worse than that, right? I mean, they do all these things that are really counter-customer. So they'll do these link-baiting headlines that actually have no substance between them because they click through better. Or they'll break stories up into five pages. So instead of just reading the story, you have to click through so they get more right. pages for their ads. Or they'll create all these, like, photo slideshows. I mean, it just leads to all sorts of very bad, I think, product design practices when all you're doing is trying to show page views for ad impressions. Yeah. Yeah, that did really gets back to this. This shouldn't be compensated for. You know, they, 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 the fact that they make money off of impressions is the problem in the first place. Yeah, and, and not very good money, right? I mean, that that money keeps going down. People are creating essentially content and page farms, right? Just so they can spray it's a race to uh, ads on top of them. And the guy, you know, the ones that make the money are the ones that are the gatekeepers, right? The ones that make the connections between the ads and that content, like the Googles. Uh, potentially the Facebooks and other companies in the world, right? It's not the individual publishers that are actually generating the unique contents that are walking away with a goldmine from this. Yeah. Well, content still seems to be king. Sure, but it sure doesn't look like it on pretty much every website I go to. <laughs> you know? I, go, I go to a website and there's like 99% of stuff on there is not content. So I don't know how they speak their kiddings, but... I've had this sensation lately in probably the second half of the road trip it really started hitting me and richard we talked about this a little bit but the sort of class war that goes on with information you know if you want free content the quality of that content will suffer and the quality of the experience of you having that content will suffer but if you you know shell out the money for an app where all of your information is right there you know and uh, it's uncluttered, and it does not have ads in it, and it these they don't have to make ad revenue to pay. Then you have a better quality of uh, of experience, and so you know maybe there's like a a, a class war going on uh, that that will you, you know between the, the 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 people who want it for free and the people who will pay for it. I'm not sure. I have that thought whenever I just go buy a newspaper. It's like, why did, why did I buy a newspaper? Because I like the luxury of sitting at my breakfast table with a cup of coffee and reading the newspaper. It's a different experience than uh, pulling up my Kindle or whatever. Now, you're, you're a dying breed, though, sadly. <laughs> yeah. But I, I will say, you know, ads in of themselves are not a negative. I mean, there's plenty of examples out there where ads are integrated as content into the experience, and it works really well. Like, uh, you know, I hear people always kind of praise Craigslist. Uh, which is sort of this online ad marketplace. And I go, oh, there's no ads on Craigslist. And I'm like, no, actually, every single thing on Craigslist is an ad. Right. Right. But it's an online ad site. It's a classified ad site. So it doesn't feel like it's advertising. It feels like it's content. Right. Um, 
And, and you know, Twitter is doing similar things with this, where they have sponsored tweets, right? They're not throwing banner ads and sticking them all over the site. They're trying to find you things based on what you're interested in reading, and they're putting it into their format and structure, so it just becomes part of that feed. TBD, how successful that is. Um, but it's definitely more of a ads as content sort of model than as this intrusive side item takeover giant, you know, visual thing that gets in your way. Mm. So what is the answer? I mean, how are uh, content providers going to provide uncluttered content in this new, you know, I mean, you look at Windows 8 and it's like all the Chrome goes away. Well, all the ads go away? Well, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think people, from my experience, people will pay for experiences and people will pay for packaging. Right, so just me as a small guy with a blog, right? I've never put ads on my site. Um, the only thing I put on there are like little coupons that people give me for like conferences and places I'm speaking at. Yeah. But the way I allow it to work, meaning the way I justify myself publishing free content out there, is every once in a while I'll package up into a book format, which people will pay for. Even they can, though they could go to my blog and find probably a lot of the same information in there if they want to shuffle through the archives and read all that all the older entries, they could probably find pretty much the bulk of the information that I published in that book. But when you put it into a package and you make it this real nice artifact for things like this, people will pay for that. Well, that's what I was sort of saying with the, with the class war thing is that not really a class war, but that you can, you know, see that you'll have a better experience if you shell out a little bit of money, but not everybody, you know, not everybody wants that. People like the idea that they can get information for free. Sure, but you gotta find, you don't have to sell it to everybody, right? Nobody's gonna sell it to everybody in the entire world. You right. just gotta find enough of an audience that will pay that it makes it worthwhile for you. Right, sure. Um, and you have to balance, like, is the amount of free stuff I'm doing enough of an attractor or enough of, you know, kind of a marketing tool, if you will, mm. that, uh, because what, the problem for all these other sites is they get you there so that you hit the page and see the ad. Mm. versus they get to there, so you start to like the content and later on you buy the book or go see the movie or whatever, right? right. My daughter is drawing a web comic, and they just printed the first book, which, again, all the content's online and free. They're selling a ton of books. I think by the time the person buying that book is already a fan. They want to be a part of that whole process. Totally. And, I mean, that's, it's a very counterintuitive, quote-unquote, business model, right? Because the way you describe it, oh, I'm just going to give everybody, everything away for free, and then after I've given it away for free, I'll sell it. Right. And yeah, the answer is, Yes! But yeah, it, it is amazing that it works that way. And it clearly does. But it, yeah, I, yeah. this, I also feel like we're not our customer. Like we're just trying to understand our customer at this point because our customer is clearly approaching things differently than the way we think. I mean, maybe it's the factor getting old. Yeah, could be. I mean, keep, things keep changing, right? Yeah. I'm scared to death of the youth today that are growing up on, like when my son, when he was 18 months, he's using an iPad. Right. Yeah. He'll never know a time without an iPad. God only knows what he's going to do. <laughs> yeah, you can't imagine what his preferred machine will be when he's in his 20s. Yeah, it's, it scares the heck out of me, right? <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, it's bad enough trying to keep up today with all the different tablets and smartphones and hybrids and convertibles and now things like Google Glass. And uh, I mean, there's new things coming at you, it seems like, every week, if not every month. And if, if that's an indicator, you know, it's only going to get crazier, right? Yeah. But, you know, none of the things you've listed there frighten me particularly. I'm, it's the disruptive one that I don't think we know about yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where's our line? Where the thing that we're not going to look at it and go, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah, well, for some people, it's Facebook, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. 
This portion of the Tablet Show is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting the Tablet Show. So, Luke, tell us a little bit about your other projects here, like Bag Check and, uh, and the other things. What, what's Bag Check all about? Yeah, so uh, Bag Check we sold to Twitter last uh, August. So I've been out of that for I mean, over a year and a half now. It's not more than actually, yeah, about a year and a half. The general idea was there. If you're into something, like you're a runner or you're a photographer, next when you meet up with another runner or another photographer, half your conversation is going to be about the gear you're using to do photography or to do right. running. Um, and so we noticed this in the world. We saw that every time we were going out and doing our kind of hobby-based things, the conversation would always turn to the gear. And we didn't see anything that was sort of the digital version of that. And so Backcheck was an attempt to take the conversation about your stuff that you use to do the things you like to do and turn it into a uh, sort of digital, uh, how shall I say, almost a repository, but at the same time. So what we allow people to do is actually create these lists of the things that they use and talk about why and have conversations around them. Okay. You could call it a collection. You could call it a curation. I don't know the exact term. but Yeah, all right. So, and it's not just for people to share you know their favorite gear and stuff but just the stuff that they use in general in everyday life yeah well you could create it around any topic so we had people saying uh you know this is the stack we're using to build out our startup uh other people went you know these are the foods that i serve my kid who have a severe peanut allergy um uh this is the stuff that you know i bring for really intense backpacking up in you know sub-zero environments things mm-hmm. like that so you could assemble this collection of around anything, and the most interesting ones are the ones that are actually really unique, uh, ones that stand out in my mind, or, you know, uh, there's one fellow who created this really exhaustive set of tools that he used to do urban photography in mm. sort of desolate places, so he'd go into abandoned factories and try and take, like, you know, really interesting photos, and he had stuff in there, like the types of gas masks or masks that he used for breathing, like pickaxes, just wow. crazy stuff, right? But uh, over the years, he had assembled this really amazing collection of, hey, I've learned this is the stuff that I need when I go do this sort of urban exploration photography. And the fact that people were, sell- were, were sharing that, right, and kind of putting their experiences out there and all their insights over the years is really cool. That is cool. Wait, you know what's interesting about that is I don't imagine many of the people looking at it were thinking, oh, boy, I need to build a pack like this. But it's all, I, just to get an insight into what it took for this guy to get the photos he gets. Yeah, absolutely. And then you have aspiring people that get into that, right? Sure. Simultaneously, 
we had people that were like, okay, I am really obsessed with taking great pictures of my kids. And look, here's the gear I've assembled to take, you know, studio-like photography of your kids for under 500 bucks. So you don't have to go out there and pay these photographers. Here's how you make awesome-looking family photos at home. So they're both photography collections of gear, right? Right. But what made, the, what made it really interesting was everybody's spin on it. Like it's not just yeah. photography. It's kind of how you're using it and why. Sure. It sounds like you're just facilitating people's OCD. <laughs> for the powers of good. Sure. Yeah, I mean, everybody's OCD about something. About something. Yep. Some of us are OCD about many things. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Some of us just have the D. Nice. <laughs> Your book, Mobile First, which I have read, I believe that's when I started pursuing you to come on the show, because that's more than a year ago now, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah. I think the book came out like October 2012. So yeah, more than a yeah. year. And I'm and I'm a believer in this idea of you know we've got it if we do mobile first it is the everything else is a superset from there. Yeah, and especially in today's you know this is one of the things that um, I've been out there advocating over and over again in the web development community, and this is one of the places where I think the web is actually a little bit ahead of native development in that I can actually build a multi-device web design that will run on a whole variety of screens, taking all the considerations, because the web has these really great reflow capabilities yeah. mm. in terms of layout that are very clunky and hard inside of native apps. The web also has delivery across every form factor of device, which you don't really get necessarily depending on the platform you're building with natively. Um, and the web also has really a, uh, this sort of progressive enhancement structure to it, Mm-hmm. That is, you can sort of write code in a way that if you can do this, use it. If you can't, then don't. Right. right. It's sort of like native to how the web is built. So I've been teaching this methodology for years now around you start with the mobile experience and you gradually enhance up and you adapt and you optimize for a whole variety of uh, different form factors. And uh, when we talk, I heard you guys sort of at the beginning of the show talking through where native apps are ahead and where the web is ahead, it feels to me like native apps are actually really behind in being able to go in and apply one methodology and process to delivering something that spans a whole range of devices. Right. And hopefully they catch up. But yeah, I mean, we, when we say native, we immediately assume I'm going to have to write this app for each device in turn. Right. right. I mean, even like Windows, right? You, let's say you're coming from the web development world. And you're like, oh, great. Windows 8 runs on smartphones, tablets, and... You know, laptops, desktops. This is awesome. Oh, wait, except you can't actually use JavaScript to do the Windows 8 phone apps. So now you immediately have a split, right? Right. Because I would say Windows 8 actually has a lot of the things that we use on the web in terms of they use sort of a responsive design methodology to building the apps and that they use media queries and all that. So if they actually let you build using JavaScript, HTML, and CSS from the ground up, from the mobile level outward, you could really have very nice cross-device workflow and enhancement layers and sort of apply the same methodology that we're using on the web inside of the native world. Yeah, I don't get the sense that Microsoft's focused on that at all. It's almost a residual, and it's sort of there, and you could make it work. Yeah, it's a shame, right? the same way that you could sort of do responsive web design in the HTML4 era, it just was bloody hard. Yeah, you'd be doing a lot of JavaScript adaptation and trying to change the DOM and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Right? I mean, it belongs in the presentation layer and something mm-hmm. like CSS, like you can do with media queries. Um, well, you know, actually, that would be one place where Windows could be ahead of the game. Could be. Because right, right now with iOS, you know, I'm making an iPhone app, I'm making an iPad app, I can't really do much for the iPad mini because it's going to include you to go detect it and change it. Mm. 
But if instead we just had sort of a reflowable UI, that is the elements and the user interface and the text and the images had the same sort of fluidity that we can build in web pages, and we had the ability to sort of switch things up when we encountered certain sort of screen parameters, like the density of the screen or the size of the screen, and we could change the layout and adapt it like we do on the web, well, it would be way smoother to create a cross-device iOS experience than it is today. Sure. Now, I don't think, like I said, Apple hasn't put any cycles in it either. If you care about responsive no, design, no. it's HTML5. Yeah. I mean, so Apple's background is in creating these fixed pixel, literally pixel perfect applications. I mean, the stories I heard from the designers over there, Steve Jobs would come over and uh, would look at their sort of director prototypes and they had the zooming tool where you could literally look at it pixel by pixel. Yeah. And that's how, they, how you'd analyze it. And so if you want that level of control over the user interface, you're going to look at the web and say, this is garbage, right? What? It doesn't look exactly the same everywhere. How can I have my pixel-perfect precision? Mm-hmm. So you have to let go of a little bit of control, but the benefit you get from that is that you can actually be everywhere and anywhere, right? Well, and I get back to, does the market care about pixel-perfect? It's always been this debate, right? Uh, if you have been creating web pages for any amount of time, you've probably had some client or some boss that comes back to you and says, it doesn't look the same in Internet Explorer as it does in Firefox. Mm. Right? And, like, the people generating the things may have that assumption and care, but, like, okay, so I'm the Firefox user. Do I ever look at IE and compare the two screens side by side to notice that this is a little bigger than this one and this one, you know, doesn't use an underline and this one does? I would argue no, right? No. Um, so what you want to do is just create the best experience you can for each platform, but it doesn't matter to me if they're identical or sure. not. In fact, trying to make them identical is, is suicide, especially today, right? This sort of pixel-perfect argument totally falls apart when you go and look at a web page on an iPad, and then you go and look at it at a 30-inch monitor. Like, how can you possibly make those two things the same? And let's go even further. Let's look at the smartphone to the 30-inch monitor, right? Right. There's just no way. Well, and this goes back to uh, a comment that uh, Jared Kappelman made on Twitter. He said, given a fixed number of working cycles, you've got so much time to do development. Do you waste time on this pixel-perfect thing, or do you build more features? Well, that depends. Uh, more features doesn't always <laughs> equate to a better product, right? Um, in fact, I think a much harder decision in product design is deciding what not to build yeah. and what to build. Um, so more features versus like, you know, exactly which two interactions matter to your site and you're going to spend 90% of your time making them as damn good as possible. Yeah. I would, I would much rather be in that boat than in the, let's blast out 50 features, 49 of which get in the way ultimately. So bad work is still bad work. doesn't matter what you're working on, but I just, I, you know, the, certainly the way you've spun it and my gut tells me that working on this pistol perfect stuff, it means making bad apps. Like you're pouring energy into things that just don't seem to make sense. Yeah. The, the question is always, you know, when do you know you're on the right track versus when you should stop? Right. Um, and this is always my fear of doing startups, especially early on. When you're very early, you just don't know exactly what's going to work and what's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And so you're constantly fearful of uh, what I call polishing a turd, right? Yep. Mm. Have, we, have we spent way too much trying to do this thing that ultimately nobody's going to really care about? Um, and so the whole idea around kind of getting it out there earlier and sooner to people is that you get some feedback around where you should focus. Sure. And it doesn't mean, you know, ship, ship something that's totally crappy and it doesn't work anywhere because then you'll get really bad feedback. But it does mean being really judicious about what you decide to include 
and then um, being sort of regimented around what you focus on after you had some insights. Sure. I'm just questioning where we, what form of feedback says to you, we better make these apps pixel perfect between the different devices? Uh, nothing for me, unless you're obsessive compulsive about the visual design of that stuff. Right. You know, I'm all for making them look very beautiful and attractive yeah. everywhere. Right. But they don't have to be exactly the same everywhere. Right. I want them to look good on each device, but I don't need, I don't need the web version on the tablet to look exactly the same as the web version on the smartphone because there's variances there, right? And yep. you sort of have to account for those variances. Yeah, i got to think that the best answer is I'm going to build the best experience on each device. Yep. And just stop there, right? And that's, and that's exactly what the adaptive workflow is, is about, right? Yeah. I keep coming back to this challenge of decomposing big apps uh, in the enterprise, and I know it's a long way off. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it, most people think it's a long way off. That uh, you know that we can use the same kind of simplified interface sitting at the desk, you know, um, working on insurance claims or something like that. Yeah, I, I think you can, right? I mean, this is all to circle this all the way back to the beginning of our conversation when we talked about extracting big value from micro mobile interactions. Right. Um, what we're doing with our current company is we're trying to like rethink the way people collect and share feedback in a world of mobile devices. So the way most companies and organizations do this now is they'll send you, you know, a five-page form with 30 survey questions. It's going to take you like 20 minutes to fill it in. And the experience is so crappy that they have to pay people to do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. right? And with a mobile device, you know, you can go in there and uh, the way we've tuned our interface in the app, uh, the current product is called Polar. We have people going in there and creating these uh, ways to collect feedback with little voting polls, if you will. And they're answering 60 things per user per day. So if a person comes to the app, they vote on 60 things. And it's, I think it's all due to how you structure that software and how you build the interface. So that's core. It's not yep. that different from just the general idea of asking people to fill out answers and forms. Right. You know where I've just seen this recently where it was clearly done right was the LinkedIn uh, skill validation. Oh, right. Endorsements, yeah. Yeah. I'm just stunned at how, you know, I start, you start getting those emails of people saying, you have skill in this skill and that, you know, they've, they've uh, you know, recommended you on these skills. Then I finally went to it myself saying, what is this? Right. And as soon as I went to it, an hour goes by. Yeah. And you're just stuck and they keep coming. And they keep on coming. Like they've done such a, it's almost a gamification of it. It is well, almost it's, a it's, it's, it's that same principle, right? Like you make it a lightweight micro sort of interaction, something you can do small and quickly. But make sure that there's some value to you on the back end, right? So the value to LinkedIn to people endorsing you is now they have profiles of everybody. Sure. And the skill that they have and what everybody thinks. And that's really valuable for their core business, which is recruiters trying to find the best X. Yeah. They're trying to find a good blank in Boston. But what's funny is you don't have to enter any data. You just either hit yes or no. Yeah. That's and it, but you, you know, lightweight interactions in and of themselves aren't the silver bullet, right? Like I can go in there and do have I can make something so simple that it really creates no value, right? So you really have to think through what um, that an aggregate is going to add up to and what it's going to mean for either your customers or your business when people do go and do this. You know, they think there's, a, there's an axiom in there that simple interaction does not necessarily mean that the user's not going to stay with you for a long time. You know, that LinkedIn interaction, each one of those was very simple, and yet I did it for an hour. Yeah, I mean, that's what we're seeing in our app, right? Like, 
60 votes per user per day. That's amazing. Uh, we did our, we did our first half million in 11 days and the second half million in eight days. Um, <laughs> wow. So for, you know, having an app out there for like 20 days and having a million bits of data around a whole variety of topics, I mean, that to me is, wow, there's something to this mobile thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and, and when you get UIs right, people will use them and keep using them. Yep. Yeah, and that's, you know, that goes back to the polishing the turd, right? When you find the thing that is important, like little details actually will matter a ton. Sure. Um, you know, I wrote a book on web form design based on the data that I saw when I was working at eBay. Because when we were doing, you know, registration or sell your item at eBay, and there's hundreds of thousands of people, uh, if not millions of people hitting those forms every single day, we saw when we moved this up to the right a little, when we changed this to bold, when we reworded this, you know, we get serious conversion impact to those forms. Right. And that sort of opened my eyes up to, hey, this web form design stuff isn't just spitting out the name value pairs from a database and asking people to input data in there. There's a real science and art to this, and it can have fundamental impact on the business. Um, at eBay, you know, we were able to do huge, I mean, I can't publicly say the numbers, but a huge double-digit, ends-of-digit increases in critical flows just through focusing things on web, focusing on things like web form design. Yeah, totally, totally different mindset. I mean, this also speaks into this whole idea of A/B testing. Like, how do you validate that one design is better than another? Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's lots of ways to do that, right? A/B testing will give you one set of data, but for example, it's not going to tell you why things are happening. Right. What you know, one's better than the other, but you don't know why one's better than the other. Yeah. So what do you do for the why? Well, uh, go talk to people. Now you're just talking crazy talk, That's, sir. Talk to people. What? <laughs> Are you nuts? You we, don't, exactly. we don't talk to people. <laughs> it's, it's insane. Uh, but yeah, you know, like the, I think the best product is actually sit and watch their customers use their product. Yeah. Right? yeah. Actually watch them interact with it. Yeah, unless you are an actual user of the product every day, day in, day out, and you see the same issues everybody is seeing. But especially in the enterprise world, you know, it's like ship it and forget it. Yeah. You're not there and looking at people use these things every day. So you don't really care about their pain. You've got no empathy. Well, you know, you could use an instrumentation tool like preemptive analytics, for example. And then you get a nice little view of how people are using your app. So it doesn't tell you why. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, great. So 50% of people are dropping off at field B. Oh, uh. I think it's because of X. No, no, no. It's because of Y. No, no, no. It's Z. Right? Yeah. You don't know. Well, hopefully, you know, hopefully some of those trends will show, reveal themselves in the data. And instrumentation at least gives you what question to ask. Yeah. It gives you, it gives you an area to look, right? Right. But, I mean, I've seen this a bunch of times where we see, again, like sort of the form-based world, we see conversion go to crap on step two. Mm. And lots of people go have theories around it, and then we go out and actually talk to people, and after the third person, we see struggling on a particular field that, like, uses the wrong label. We're like, oh, that's it. They thought yeah. this meant blank, but in our mind, this means, you know, this other thing. Mm. Um, and the other, the other reason why I say talking to people is so important in that regard is because we have all of our internal biases, right? Sure. Like we know our products in and out because we built them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's called the thingamahoo. What? No, 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 the thingamahoo only goes to three. Why would anybody ever think it goes to five? <laughs> um, <laughs> Your own internal biases. Yeah, I mean, you know the guts of the... Pro it's not a bias. It's just you know the thing so darn well because you built it or because you designed it. You know every nook and cranny. 
Um, so you know how to get things done that the average person coming to it will have no clue about. Um, and over time, it just becomes so second nature to you. Well, that's just, you know, command X, Y. Look, here you have this shortcut. Right. Whereas the average person has no clue that that's even possible. Yeah. And with that, uh, I think that's a show. Our guest has been uh, Luke Robluski. Thank you very much, Luke. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time on The Tablet Show. It's not too much, but it means a lot. Just try.